Good morning. If you would like to read along, we're reading from Psalm 34 this morning. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is God's word. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David is recalling here in this ancient song uh, an experience that he had of tasting God's goodness when he was in a tight spot. We've been working through the summer. This will probably be the last one uh, for, uh, for the warm weather. Uh, we've been working through the Psalms, learning about prayer, learning about meditation on God's truth, regardless of what situation we're in, regardless of how we're feeling. And David here recalls a time when he was in a tight spot. He was running from Saul, the king who wanted to kill him, but he ran into Philistine territory and he found himself in the custody of the Philistine king, so kind of out of the frying pan into the fire sort of a situation. And basically David pleads insanity before the Philistine king and he gets out that way, released because of insanity essentially. And so the Lord got him out of that tight spot, and he wrote this song, thanking God for his kindness to him. One of my favorite movies is, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where'd it go? There it is. It's one of my favorite movies. And and the main uh, main character, Ulysses Everett McGill, uh, keeps saying again and again, as they go from one difficult situation 
uh, into another, he keeps saying, we're in a tight spot. You keep hearing you, uh, Everett, they just call him Everett for short. You keep, they keep hearing Everett say, we're in a tight spot. And that's really where David was. And that's what he's singing about, how he was in a tight spot. And for you and I, that's often the rhythm of our lives. That's, that's our cadence. We were ushered from one tight spot into another, uh, sometimes with, with no break, no buffer in between. Barely catch your breath and you're in another difficult situation. Or maybe you've enjoyed a month, or maybe you've enjoyed a year or a decade, but another tight spot eventually comes. And sometimes you wonder, when am I going to get some relief? When am I going to enjoy my life? Right? Because all the books say and all my teachers said, if you get this far and work hard, then you'll enjoy fill in the blank. And you're like, when is fill in the blank going to come? I'm just going from one tight spot to the next. When am I going to really enjoy my life? When am I going to truly live? Now, I'm convinced as a Christian that until you taste... Right? David uses the word taste, and, and what he means by that, and what I mean by that today is to experience, to know, to personally know. Until you taste God's goodness in His Son, Jesus Christ, you will never fully live. I am convinced of that as a Christian. You will live for a while, and for a while you will have biological life, but you will remain spiritually dead the New Testament tells us, or you'll be infantile spiritually. Perhaps the most impactful way, really, to taste God's goodness is in your tight spots, is in the difficult places. We can't escape life's ugliness, and most of you know that by now, but we can experience God's goodness in, in the face of all sorts of ugliness. And that's what I want to focus on today. And as we meditate on Psalm 34, I want to talk to you about the goodness that we experience from God himself. I also want to talk to you about what it means to pursue that goodness. And I also want to talk about how God in the end really is pursuing us. So uh, the goodness that we experience, the goodness that we pursue, and the goodness that pursues us. That's today. Now, the goodness that is experienced in Psalm 34 is the kindness of God. David has been convinced that God is kind to those who seek it, to those who seek him. David joyfully rants on and on about all of these blessings, the blessings of experiencing God's kindness in trouble. So just a few examples Verse 5, uh, he tells us that those who look to God are radiant. Verse 10, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then in verse 18, perhaps uh, the greatest blessing of all, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Near to the brokenhearted and saved, saves the crushed in spirit. It's not when you have recently gorged yourself on a feast that food tastes better to you. It is when you are hungry that food tastes its best. And so likewise, God's kindness is sweet when you taste it in your troubles, when you're thirsting, when you're seeking, when you're hungering for Him because you realize 
that you need him because of your circumstances. Now, if you're a skeptical person, if you're not quite yet there, uh, convinced like David is that the God of the Bible is good, uh, you may say at this point, now hold on, how can it be that those who seek this God, quoting David, lack no good thing? How, are we ever in a situation in our lives where we lack no good thing? We never lack any good thing? Life is hard. It can be cruel and painful. We see and suffer injustice. We get sick. One, philosoph- one philosopher once said, religion seeks to avoid all that. Religion seeks to provide a panacea above all the hurt that we see and know experience. One philosopher said religion is like an opiate for all the people, for the masses. And I think that's an important perspective to consider. Because David answers it right here in verse 19. Notice what he does. He says, in, he says in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Notice he doesn't, this isn't a panacea. He's not ignoring all the horrible things we face and deal with and feel. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. He can say that the righteous, those who seek God, lack no good thing. And at the same time, many are their afflictions, right? He's not pulling the wool over anybody's eyes, but he goes on to say Though their afflictions are many, the Lord delivers him out of them all. And that's an important balance to have. See, God didn't prevent all of David's troubles from taking place, but God delivered David out of them all. God doesn't remove all the tight spots from your path, but he does deliver you out of all of those tight spots. As the preacher uh, Tim Keller has said before, life is hard, but God is good. And in Psalm 34, you see that you can taste his goodness personally, experientially, not only in the knowledge that he gives us in his word, not only in the gift of faith and things that follow the faith that we have in God's word, like love and joy and peace. Yes, that's truly living to experience the knowledge of God, the peace of God, the love of God, the joy and hope that he and his word and his spirit give us. But we also experience true living in our suffering, in our loss. We truly live in our grief as we experience personally the goodness of God. So that the Apostle Paul could say in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he would say to them, while telling them a story about his, his intense suffering, he said to them, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. See, here's, not, here's another biblical author not ignoring the hardness and cruelty of the human experience. He says, I, I'm, in content, I'm, in, I'm content with all of that, for when I am weak, then I am strong. This sounds like a person that is living true life, that is truly living. This is a person who had tasted, like David, God's goodness. But how do we taste and see ourselves? Paul was convinced. David was convinced. How can you and I become convinced that God is good? Especially when all the evidence around, we can easily look at the same evidence around us 
look at everything that's happening to us and in us and say there is no God. Or there must be a God, but he must not be good if all of this is going on. How can we, with the same data and evidence and experiences, conclude that this is not some panacea, some heavenly drug that's just going to kind of keep us going through this horrible life? How do we get there? How do we taste and see that God is good? Well, the goodness that you pursue must be determined by God's standards. That's the key. Follow me now. The good life that you pursue or are looking for must be consistent with the goodness that God deems is appropriate. Your creator determines what's good for you. You don't. The one who made you knows what is best for you, knows what is the best input and resources that allows you as his creature to succeed and to do well. And so what David does, and this is a sort of proverb-like wisdom interlude in his song. In verses 11 through 14, he kind of changes his focus and he says, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And another way of saying that is, I will teach you how to find true life in God. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Interpret, another way of saying that is, you want to know what it means to live the good life, to truly live? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Here's what David is saying. Do you want to know God? Do you want to taste the good life? Then pursue his version of the good life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us what is, asks us, what is the chief end of humanity? Does anybody know the answer? Yeah. Somebody. Yeah, okay, lots of people know it. The chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, and I have come to believe that that is exactly right. But don't expect to know God and don't expect to enjoy God while convinced that at the same time you can enjoy the things that He hates. You will not find happiness in God. You cannot enjoy the peace of God while you nurse an unforgiving heart towards those who have hurt you. You cannot enjoy the protection that God offers and provides, the protection David knew. You cannot enjoy the protection of God while wanting more protection from your parents or wanting more protection from your spouse or your friends or the government or whatever. You cannot know God's protection if you want it from somebody else more. C.S. Lewis put it this way, God gives what he has, not what he has not. He gives the happiness that there is, not the happiness that is not. And then he gives us three options, C.S. Lewis. To be God, to be like God, and to share his goodness in creaturely repose. To be miserable. These are the only three alternatives. Or another way of putting all of this is to say... You begin to see that God is good first by acquiring a taste for his goodness. 
The goodness of God is an acquired taste. The goodness of God is a taste that, according to the Bible, God's Spirit must give you. You can't conjure up a taste for God on your own. You don't have it in you. God must give you an acquired taste for His goodness, but once He has given it to you, the Scriptures tell us we must now cultivate that good taste that God gives us for Himself. One way the Apostle Paul put it was, work out your salvation. You're saved, good. Now work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he says. Think about ethnic foods. Think about coffee. Think about wine. To enjoy these things, you must keep at it, right? You, you must not give up after your first taste, revealing to you that it's bitter or weird. You must keep at it in order to finally acquire a taste for something that you originally wanted to spit out of your mouth. And so the Apostle Peter thought that this psalm was so important that he quoted it in more than one place in his first letter. First Peter chapter 2, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so you see now that we have to consistently reject other tastes in order to enjoy God's goodness. We don't just say, God, I can't taste your goodness, and, and you keep sipping on the octane that's killing you. You have to reject certain tastes in order to develop a taste for the goodness of God. Just one practical example, I, I remember a time uh, like David, when I was in a, you know, I've had several tight spots in life. I can think of a particular time when I truly tasted God's goodness. Uh, some of you know the story, or at least part of it. Uh, once when I was in the hospital in a waiting room by myself, uh, awaiting major surgery, the surgery was to remove um, an aggressive form of cancer. Uh, so I found myself, you know, after a certain point, they tell your loved ones, you got to go and he needs to be by himself. We're going to give him the silly juice, and he's just got to wait until he gets wheeled away to the operating room. And this was one of those experiences where I, you know, they were backed up with other procedures, and I was just by myself for like two hours. Um, and in that time, uh, all alone, one of the things I did was I went to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul talks about a weakness he had, a thorn in his flesh that was just, just torturing him in his life. And he asked God again and again to take it away, and God kept telling him no. And this was Paul's account. He said, I asked three times, and three times the answer God gave me was no, but the Lord Jesus said to me, and these were Paul's, uh, this was Paul's recollection of what the Lord Jesus said to him. My grace is sufficient for you. Think you need to just be silent while you digest those words before we move on. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That was Paul's story. And when I read those things, this extraordinary piece just came over me right at that moment. It was palpable. It was physiological. I knew it, I knew it was happening. I, could, I felt different. And I, I didn't get the silly juice yet. 
This was before the silly juice, before the verset. And I could feel mentally, emotionally, physiologically something happen. And I believed that the peace of God came over me. It was, not, it was not an emotional detachment from what I was dealing with. It was not a psychological numbness. It was not an intellectual momentary lapse of reason. No, I was very much engaged in what was happening at that moment. I knew that I may not wake up. I knew that when I woke up, I may have gotten worse news. I knew potentially I wouldn't be around for much longer after that operation. But I experienced the peace of God. I had my wits about me, and I was convinced that the presence of God was palpable, that he was with me, and that he would never leave me. No matter what happened, I knew he wouldn't leave me, and I knew that he would take care of the people that I was responsible for in life. I was convinced in that moment that God was with me and he would never forsake me and he would take care of the responsibilities that I'd have to let go of if I truly had to let go. And so I experienced exactly what David says in his song in verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. And we find that the more we taste in, in moments like that, the more we taste the kindness of God. In our troubles, in our troubles, the more we see that he is good. As we consistently taste, we become convinced of his goodness. So keep at it. Don't give up. Don't stop cultivating this new taste in you. You must reject your sinful nature's taste for false goodness. There are two primary ways that false goodness presents itself in our thinking, in our behavior. One is legalism and the other is license, or that's short for licentiousness. And I mean these two terms in a broad way. Legalism, according to the Bible, is having a sense of morality, but not very much humility about your morality justifying yourself because of your high standards and your ability to keep them, your religion, your reputation, your success, and weighing yourself compared to others and their lack of it. This is a false goodness. Not only legalism, but licentiousness is a false goodness as well. License is... It's pursuing freedom and enjoying independence, but with no desire for personal purity, with no interest in the holiness of God. Licentiousness is justifying yourself because you have no standards, because you are free to defy the standards in whatever situation you might be in, because you are free to express yourself to invent yourself and reinvent yourself, and you are free to define what happiness is for you. And this license, according to the Bible, is also a false goodness. Now, both legalism and license are poisons. Regardless of how sweet they taste at the moment, they are killing you. Because they do not represent and feed you with the goodness of God, but are rather in direct opposition to it. 
And until your taste becomes accustomed to God's goodness, you will starve. You will never truly live. To quote C.S. Lewis once again from The Problem of Pain, he says, if we will not eat the only food that the universe grows, the only food that any possible universe can grow, then we must starve eternally. God has offered all that there is to nourish us, but we must take it. Wow, now that's a sight. <laughs> what is going on? It's a wedding, really? In four years, I've never, like I heard, <laughs> I saw people snickering in the front, but they snicker a lot because I know how funny looking I am. But this time I'm like, they're laughing, but they're looking out and I'm like, what? It's like one of those Disney moments, right? Oh boy. Swing low, sweet. Swing low, sweet. <laughs> Steve, can you figure out swing low, sweet chariot for the last song? Oh boy. I hope that wasn't some kind of a sign. But even if it is, by the, by the end of this message, you'll feel comfortable about it. All right. So, so here's the thing. What, what, what we're saying is that God has provided a food that his creatures are designed to live on and thrive on and flourish on, and, and we choose to deny that. We're hungry for other things. We, we have a twisted taste palate. And as long as we reject God's goodness for the taste of other things, we're going to spiritually starve ourselves to death, C.S. Lewis says, because there's nothing else in the universe that can supply, that can fill us. And so the grace of God in this context now, the grace of God, which we firmly uphold and preach all the time, the grace of God is that he pursues us while we're starving. While we're on life support, unable to feed ourselves, actually when we're dead, he spoon feeds us. The grace of God is that he spoon feeds to you the sustenance that only he provides. Until you're able to fully embrace that taste as a habit. If you go back to the psalm and you look at verse 20, and Chris mentioned this earlier to the kids, uh, David says that, that, you know, those who seek God, he's going to protect them. And at one point, David says, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And we know that that's poetic. It's, it's figurative imagery. But that truly was fulfilled in Jesus when Jesus hung on a cross, according to John's gospel. Uh, they didn't break his bones. When you were crucified, uh, the horrible act of Roman crucifixion was that eventually, not only was it publicly humiliated to be hanging naked on a cross as a spectacle for all to see, this is what happens to criminals, essentially, is what the Roman government was saying. It was not only humiliating, but it was designed to suffocate you because you couldn't support your weight. So, so eventually you would suffocate and you would die of suffocation on a cross. Well, it was, it was traditional for, for the Roman guards to eventually, if, if you were going on and on and on and they wanted to get this over with, they would break the criminal's legs so that the criminal couldn't support themselves on that cross. And with broken legs, you'd completely hang and suffocate more quickly and die sooner so that they could get home. But when they came to Jesus, John's gospel tells us they saw that he was already dead. And so they didn't break his bones. 
They remained intact. Instead, they pierced his side and blood and fluid uh, gushed out of his side, we are told in the Gospels. And so we see that, that, that Jesus fully tasted the bitterness of this life's ugliness. You know how bitter life can be. You know how ugly life has been for you. Jesus tasted that. He knows exactly what it's like. He completely empathizes and sympathizes with you. He has tasted the bitterness of the human existence. And most palpably, when he hung on that cross, the bitterness was so complete that even when he asked for a drink before he said his last words, what he was offered was a bitter substance. He didn't ask for it at the beginning. They tried to give it to him. Compare all the gospel accounts. At the beginning, he was offered this bitter substance. It was designed to numb you during the death process. He didn't want it. He refused it, if you read about it, because he, I think he wanted his wits about him while he suffered in your place. But in the end, he took it right before he gave up his spirit to the Lord, to his Father. And he fully tasted the bitterness of this life's ugliness when David said in verse 22 of this psalm, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The price of that, the price to bring you that that, that freedom from condemnation, it cost Jesus everything. As he hung on the cross as your substitute, because you deserve to hang there as a sinner, as Jesus hung on the cross as your substitute, he tasted God's bitterness and wrath upon himself so that you could taste God's goodness. That is why it is offered to you and is absolutely, absolutely possible for you to taste the goodness of God because Jesus tasted the bitterness of God that you deserved. And the Spirit of God will spoon feed you on this reality until finally it is your joy to feast on it in abundance. There's a story of I don't know whether it's a true story or just one of those proverbs that ends up in a thousand sermon illustrations, and I try and stay away from those, but I really want to use it, this one today. There's a story of an old preacher who was approached by a, an unbelieving skeptic who demanded that the old preacher prove to him that God exists and that God is good. Prove it to me. And the old preacher was eating an apple, and he said, so tell me something. He said to the skeptic, tell me something. Is this apple I'm eating sweet or sour? And the skeptic said, There's, it's impossible for me to answer that question without tasting the apple myself. And the preacher replied, exactly. You don't know that God is good because you have not tasted my Jesus. We experience God's goodness in the face of all sorts of ugliness by experiencing God's goodness in the face of Jesus. Jesus wipes the playing field of all excuses that God might exist, that we don't know what he's really like if he does exist, if you pursue him. I promise you all your questions will be answered, but have you? Are you refusing? Are you keep spitting him out of your mouth because you don't want to taste him? I challenge you. I promise you. If you allow the taste to cultivate itself within you, you will be convinced of the goodness of God. You say right now you're not convinced, you don't believe. 
I don't believe you've tasted Jesus. I think there are a lot of other things that you're trying to taste that you believe will satisfy you. And I encourage you, find the goodness of God, taste it in Jesus alone. And keep at it. Keep at it. Don't read the Bible one day and give up. Don't talk to just one Christian and give up and never, never pursue Jesus again. Jesus says things like, ask, seek, knock, taste. Keep pursuing him. He invites you to. So far, God has delivered you from every tight spot you've ever faced. Psalm true, Psalm true. Psalm 34 is true of every single person in this room. God has delivered you from every single tight spot you faced. If that were not true, you wouldn't be here. Now, amen. Now, at some point, some, you're going to get caught in some tight spot. At some point, some trouble is going to come along and it's going to end your life. And then what? Will you taste as the psalm warns? Will you taste only bitterness? being separated from the love and grace of God forever? Will you know a bitterness then that you only deal with intermittently now? Or will at that moment, beyond your last struggle, will you experience the fulfillment of that thing that you've been longing for all your life, the good life, the true life, Feasting on the goodness of God. I pray that we will develop a taste for that above all things. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would impress upon us the reality of your goodness. Whatever we struggle with that is causing us to doubt you, I ask that you would remove our doubts by expressing to us in a different way, each of us, what we need what we need to experience, what we need to go through in order to taste that you are good and to see it. Father, I thank you that you did not leave us without a witness for yourself in history. I thank you for the Lord Jesus, and I pray that we would learn to see his goodness, that we would seek him, that we would ask, that we would knock, that we would taste. And I thank you that he proved your goodness to us by dying in our place, and by rising from the dead. And I ask that his spirit would cultivate within each of us a longing to taste more and more your goodness. Lord, may it be something that we no longer spit out of our mouth, but something that we long for, something that we rejoice in, something that we want to feast on, something that we want to share with others. In his name, amen.